0: And welcome to episode 154 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we looked at invisible apps. I noticed lately that hardly a day goes by where I don't hear or read something about artificial intelligence, IBM's Watson, and whether computers and software or even robots will be taking over the role of lawyers. We thought we'd use this episode to enter that conversation and reflect on artificial intelligence
1: and its potential impact on lawyers. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we'll be talking about artificial intelligence and lawyers. Uh, in our second segment, we're going to revisit the topic of traveling with technology. One of us has done that lately, and share some recent observations and tips. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's talk about AI and lawyers. Dennis, I understand uh, IBM held a world of Watson conference a couple of weeks ago to discuss the the current state as well as the future of artificial intelligence. On the, on the other hand, the last movie that I saw in theaters was Avengers Age of Ultron, where the bad guy was actually the ultimate in artificial intelligence. Uh, kind of scary to think about that. Uh, although some of the work that I do Touches on artificial intelligence. I've got to admit, there's a lot more out there that uh, than I really know about. Dennis, do uh, do we even want to try to talk about what AI means anymore? That is the interesting question to me because
0: artificial intelligence, depending on what sources you look at, goes back at least to the 1950s um, and then kind of bubbled up at different times, probably in each each decade. I, I remember like even in the early 80s, I was reading about what was happening in artificial intelligence and the types of... You know, diverse perspectives and approaches that you had, and I, I might have even talked to somebody who suggested I sort of fit the candidate for somebody to to, to work on artificial intelligence. But I think that what artificial intelligence is and the definition, um, I, I think, why it's slippery is that there is this habit um, that we humans have of every t- of defining what artificial intelligence would need to do to actually qualify as artificial intelligence and do something that humans are uniquely capable of doing. And every time we develop software that accomplishes that, we sort of define it out of what's uniquely human intelligence. And so you can go back quite a ways and say, hey, if there was a software program that could defeat anybody in chess, that would be a demonstration of artificial intelligence. Well, then it really wasn't a chess program that could beat anybody. It was a chess program who could beat somebody who was really good. And then it became who could beat the best chess player in the world. And then it was beating the best chess player in the world, two out of three, three out of five, you know, that sort of thing. So it always seems like there's a moving target on what artificial intelligence is. And and so I think what what has maybe changed now and and the way I like to think about it is there's sort of the the classic approach to artificial intelligence, which is designing software and systems, because I think robots do come into play here, that – is created sp- explicitly to model how we believe that humans think and then to, to work with the logic along that way. So it's almost like a top-down approach versus what we're seeing now, which is sort of, Gets us into the area of, of big data and stuff, uh, where there is there are things like machine learning, and it's almost a bottom up approach where the the software and the tools you use uh, look for patterns and do other things in data and get the results they want from that way. So it's almost a flip over of what we traditionally thought of artificial intelligence. So maybe I've driven, you know, gone too far into the, the weeds on that time. I, I How'd I do? And at least trying to set the stage for artificial intelligence.
1: Well, you kind of went all over the place there, but that's okay. I, I have difficulty defining it as well. I went out to look to look for some good definitions of it. I found the, the stodgy uh, uh, definition of the science and engineering of intelligent machines, and that's clearly not enough. That may have been enough at some point in time, but I think that it's really not enough to say that now. I found one, though, that um, a definition that really, to me, was elegant and pretty well explains the concept to people who might not be able to f- fully understand. It. And that is that, that artificial intelligence is a means of designing a system that can perceive its environment and take actions that will maximize its success. I, I kind of like that approach, that they that it's able to know what's going on a- around it and it can adjust to that knowledge, which is a uniquely human trait uh, and, and, and something that I think it kind of is along the lines of, of what you were talking about is how do humans think. I kind of like like this way of defining it a little bit better. I don't know if that gets it closer to you Dennis or is there a definition you'd prefer to use?
0: Well, I don't know if I actually have a definition I prefer, but I like what the definition you gave um, also when you think about it brings back in the notion of, of robotics which yep. where I, where I, I think there is um, I mean there's a I guess there's a recent robot contest where they were trying to get robots to do these sort of unique uh, human tasks uh, on the fly and and some of them failed spectacularly in their funny videos about it but but some of them succeeded and, and it was that sort of adaptive intelligence and then um, actually practically responding to that so i think the robotics thing is is sort of interesting but it also reflects like i said Tom, i when we first when i first brought up this topic i said man i'm seeing this everywhere i look and you and you said you are because cuz i'm not and i just have found lately that between you know robotics podcasts. Uh, I know Ron Friedman and others have been writing about IBM Watson. I've seen a, a lot of things on artificial intelligence. I know the the uh, International Conference of on AI and Law, I think, just happened. And I've seen calls for papers on artificial intelligence and law. So it, it just, you know, either I'm just noticing a pattern all of a sudden, or there, there's been a little bit of surge of interest in AI. And I think it does kind of, as in always all discussions with AI, it gets to that root fear we have. And that the big question of, can we come up with, is, is there going to be software that takes away the jobs of lawyers or can do things that lawyers think they can do better so we don't need uh, lawyers to do those things anymore?
1: But, you know, is is that really the only fear? Because that's clearly a fear. And, and I want you to kind of talk about how, I mean, in what ways artificial intelligence stands to, to take away jobs from, from lawyers. But, um, you, know, you know, the other thing that I do want to talk about during this, Segment is the the fear that it's not always accurate. You know, they, I think that we look at at Watson defeating uh, Jeopardy champions, and uh, and obviously it can get those answers correct. Um, but when we start to turn that information to legal documents and ask it to read it and to make a judgment call about uh, about certain things about that document, there is still a great deal of fear out there that the machine doesn't have the same appreciation of, uh, of of the subtleties of what they might be seeing on a document. And I think that feeds into some level of distrust of artificial intelligence, at least among lawyers.
0: Right. And I think that's also our, so I had a number of conversations recently with people about I think that we're making a trade-off of giving up our privacy and sort of the big data, the collection of data about us in exchange for getting better information and things that's you know better suited to us. And I think we're losing out on that, that bargain. So even, it was a Disney World time where you figure they do a great job of collecting data on visitors and you're sort of willing to share that because it's Disney and you figure it's customizing your experience to you. But... They had, uh, there's something wrong on my bill. There were other couple examples of things that just surprised me because I assumed that because I was wearing this wristband that they had this data that would customize to me. So I didn't know whether there was a lag time in the collection of the data versus the application of it or it's just you don't have good data. And so I think we see a lot of examples of that in collection of data, the recommendations we get, things like that. There's promise in that, but it's not so good in in some ways. And I think where the question I would raise for lawyers is we – and I think we'll circle back to this – is even if it's not so good, is it good enough and does that – come out to be better than what humans do. And, and I guess, Tom, I'll, I'll just throw this to you. I mean, if you look at, at the notion of TAR, or technology-assisted review, isn't that part of the notion? that if we, if we say, here are these bored, tired associates going through documents versus the software working on the same document or data set, and, and it comes with, with, with better results, aren't we better even if that software isn't getting perfect results?
1: So I'll give two examples, and I and I I think yes, the example you give is one where where we, that might be an acceptable trade-off. So both TAR, technology-assisted review, some call it computer-assisted review, but I think TAR now technology-assisted review is the is the more accepted term. Predictive coding sort of came before TAR, but they're both ways that. Humans can use technology to facilitate the review of documents. I We probably talked about them a little bit, but I'll give a brief explanation. I think that the general process works by first feeding into the system a, a sample of documents, a seed set uh, of, of documents that are in general relevant to a specific issue. Um, that sample is first reviewed by humans and it's coded, then it's provided to the tool so it can learn. Um, and most of the time, these documents are going to be coded for relevance with certain terms or concepts that might make a document relevant and the technology is scanning all these pages of documents for, for those terms. But, um, but, Tar also allows you to code for responsiveness to other issues, uh, even to to code for privileged documents. If you've got the the words privilege on them, if you've got lawyer names on them, and you can feed them in, you can code them for a number of different ways. And the technology learns from this coding, but it has to be to be successful. It has to be iterative. You have to continually feed it more information and help it become smarter to make sure that it's getting everything. And in those cases, I think that I think that it's acceptable for there to be misses. It's not going to be perfect. The people who advocate for TAR say that that's still going to be more accurate than the average human reviewer is going to be. The fact that courts are now actively ordering TAR as a method of reviewing documents in in certain cases is certainly an indication that courts are willing to to take that risk that there might be documents missing. But let me turn around and, and look at it from a different perspective. From electronic discovery perspective, I think that that makes sense. But let's talk about it from a record retention standpoint. You're required to retain certain records for a certain period of time. And there are a number of tools out there that are becoming more popular um, that will auto-classify your records by retention period. And I've worked with a company before that they developed their own auto-classification tool for email, where where the the technology would read the email and would automatically put the email either into a three-year bucket or an eight-year bucket, depending on the content that was in those emails. They developed this vast taxonomy of words. And if any of these words showed up, then the technology knows which bucket to put it in. And if it's in a three-year bucket, it gets deleted after three years. If it's in the eight-year bucket, it gets deleted after eight years. And this was presented to the legal department. And the legal department was extremely concerned of, I guess, what we call false positives, that email would be mistakenly identified as a three-year email and deleted five years before it was supposed to, where it wouldn't be around for litigation. It wouldn't be around for regulatory or compliance purposes. And they shut it down. They basically made this. They, they basically said we're going to keep all email for eight years and just be done with it. And they wind up keeping a whole lot more records than they were before. Um, but there's still, I think, a lot of fear out there that uh, that technology like this isn't where it might be okay in e discovery. It's suddenly not as okay when it comes to uh, retaining records and becoming compliant in certain areas. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the compared to what. Uh,
0: you know, issue where you say, well, I'm really worried about the software getting some percentage of things wrong where I'm perfectly tolerant of tired, overworked, under pressure people making mistakes, not getting around to doing things, stuff like that and so you need to think that through i don 't think there's you know one perfect answer and, and I think you know obviously, time as you say, movies and popular culture have instilled in us a, a certain fear of artificial intelligence uh, you know at least as, as far back and probably even farther than than Hal in two thousand and one movie. So that's all out there, but there are other things happening that I think we're finding perfectly acceptable. And so if if you think about cars these days, you know, and how they can figure out there's a problem and, you know, correct your braking and keep you from... You know, swerving and uh, keeping from spinning out, and even park your cars and soon drive. I mean, clearly that's artificial intelligence of some kind, and and then also think that there's an aspect of artificial intelligence we didn't talk about, how it, it sort of evolves and changes itself, and so you see those things and. I'm comfortable with those systems taking over my car because
1: I think they can react faster than I can and probably do a better job. So let me ask. So you're comfortable with that. Are you comfortable to use a driverless car? Google's testing their driverless cars now. Does your comfort level go that far that you'll sit in the back seat and let the car take you wherever it wants to go? Well, if it's a
0: Honda driverless car, then I'm totally on board. If it's an <laughs> Apple driverless car, maybe I am. If it's a Google one, you know, I'm, a, a, you know, and not to go back to Google Wave again, but I mean, I think I'm a little more. I need a little more proof from from Google's, but but I think we're a ways off from that. But I, you know, having a long commute, I wouldn't mind having a driverless car, and it certainly. Even at this point, it's some of the driverless cars have to be
1: way better than the people cutting me off on the highway every morning. It's a psychological acceptance is what it is. It's, I, I think you're right. And, and if you've been reading some of the reports... Whatever you think about Google having driverless cars, they are actually sending out reports about how their cars are doing, and it and it turns out that the only accidents that these cars are having are cars in which the other car was at fault, where it, lots of rear-end accidents. And or where the human tester, because they still had a human tester in there, where the human tester took over maneuvering of the car in perception to some kind of danger. And so it, it, it appears that, that actually these driverless cars are, are, are doing pretty well. And, and there's a lot of people who are predicting that cabs and, and, and other types of public transportation will be driverless here in five to 10 years. And uh, I think that the primary issue about accepting that is is psychological, is just Uh, Do I really feel comfortable being in the backseat of the car that I have no control over? And I think that we can apply that also to uh, a lot of these technologies because I'm giving my control over as a lawyer, um, which is in general a very controlling profession. uh, And I'm letting technology take control of it, which uh, I think is a scary thing to a lot of lawyers
0: and I, and i think this what we'll see is the evolution there in in the driverless cars is what we've seen before and and to go back to my chess example in, in a few years we'll start to say well you know actually that's not something that's human intelligence and and possibly at the point where we even say well you know it's not really a test of human intelligence to drive you know that was that's really not That sort of thing. And so we keep kind of redefining what it is that's human intelligence, um, which is kind of an interesting thing. But let's focus on lawyers a bit. I sometimes say that part of the the general sense of, you know, displeasure, I guess, uh, the depression that lawyers have about the job is I sometimes think it's because we're doing the work that we should allow machines to do. Um, and computers to do, and and I think that w- there's a bunch of examples where now computers and software do things that as lawyers it's it's really to our benefit and it's really been helpful to us. I'm talking about I you know back in the days when you used to do sophisticated tax planning calculations on on big paper spreadsheets versus compared to computer software. World of difference, and it frees you up from the tedium to actually do the creative work that you associate lawyers with. I think, you know, the difference that just simple spell checking makes uh, in in the world of, of proofreading, plus, you know, the tools like WordRake and stuff like that that can do even more sophisticated things really help us. The examples in document review, there's a whole bunch of examples where I think that uh, the software has come in and there was probably an initial concern that this would eliminate a lot of the billable hours that lawyers did, but it it works fine. It's not just part of our standard skill set. So some of that's going on. So my question is sort of like, is what we're thinking about artificial intelligence and the talk now, because I think the feeling is artificial intelligence, Intelligence can do, make judgment calls, you know, evaluations, make decisions that we sort of feel are uniquely the province of lawyers, and that's what I think brings brings lawyers to a lot of unease. Do you think I'm on track there, Tom, or is this just another of my crazy ideas?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that that's where they that's where they see all of this going is is that they see companies like LegalZoom, like other companies, and they perceive that they are taking work away from them uh, that is inherently within the lawyer's domain to do that. We see accountants uh, doing the same thing. So why would technology not be any different? As technology becomes more able to manage certain tasks, you know, on the one hand, it can help free the lawyer up. Uh, you know i argue that the the technologies you just mentioned the spell check and and word rake and those i think that they save lawyers lots of time but i also know that they save them time from having to proofread the document themselves uh, to that extent but i still guarantee you that uh, they're going to go through each each spell check they're not just going to trust it they're going to go through each one and make sure that it's that it's correct so i think that there's still a great deal of hesitation in the areas where they're taking away that judgment call that a lawyer thinks is uniquely a lawyer's to make. And that's where I think that, uh, although we're getting there slowly and and inexorably, I think that's going to be the thing that slows us down. Well, and that's where I have a big hesitation. Because I I think
0: when, so in preparation, as I was thinking about this podcast, I was thinking, here's the things I do on a regular basis. I've looked at some of the things I've done over over the last couple of days in terms of work. And some of it's boring and it's tedious and I don't know how much value I add to it. And I can easily see some sort of software or artificial intelligence taking care of eliminating that part of my work and freeing me up to do what what I think is the really creative and valuable higher level legal work I can do. So that's sort of one factor where I say, why am I scared of artificial intelligence if it's freeing me up to do better work and eliminating stuff that I don't need to do? So I say, well, that's one bucket of things that I think about on this. And then the other is... You know, going back to the 80s, when I was in law school, I was in a class on computers in the law seminar, and we we spent one class talking about artificial intelligence and and law. And so we raised the question of what would happen if I could, this is a little bit of a moving target, what if I knew that I had an artificial intelligence program that could weigh all the evidence in a case, uh, and we'll call it a criminal case, and it had the likelihood of getting the right, what we'll call the right answer you know 98% of the time or i could have a jury that you know based on what we know about uh, the problems with eyewitness testimony, uh, you know, bad forensics lab results and all that sort of stuff that maybe getting the true and accurate result to the extent we could define that as more like 90%. Would I want to be tried by the artificial intelligence program or by the human jury? And in the class, there are two of us who were okay with going with the percentages and taking the artificial intelligence and everybody else said, no, I want the human element because they can make adjustments. And I I, I sort of think that becomes the crux of the matter when you say, do I trust the software? Do I trust the level of accuracy? Or am I giving the human element a free pass even though I know there are problems that I'm choosing to overlook? Got you there, didn't I, Tom?
1: No, you did. I mean, I think, but I think, again, you're, you're right about that. I will always look at these issues. And and, and I go back, you went back to the 80s to talk about artificial intelligence. I'll go back to the idea of document assembly, which is hardly an advanced uh, artificial intelligence tool, but it is designed to make a lawyer's job more simple. And how many lawyers actively use document assembly? Uh, I would argue very few compared to the total population of, of lawyers. So, uh, you know, I hate to be the the, the the negative person here, but I just think it's going to take, I think, as usual, we're going to see the larger firm lawyers, the ones that can can afford to get into these areas, the ones that are already using technology assisted review, so they have firsthand experience with it. I think you're going to see them adapting to it and accepting it much more readily than solo and small form lawyers who really are going to come to this late and are going to probably be much more skeptical of it because it has the potential to take away their livelihood.
0: Well, and I, I think the other thing is is not so much that Tom. For me, is as I say, I look at the people who don't have access to lawyers. Uh, whatever that number is, eighty percent in in the U.S. don't have uh, access to adequate legal representation. They need some kind of help. There's uh, certain types of disputes that are super high volume and need to be handled quickly. You know, whether that's you know the sort of eBay type. Uh, transactions and arbitration on that or small insurance claims and that sort of thing where you say, wow, an artificial intelligence package that was done right could be really helpful in these areas, could work in the area of misdemeanors, things like that. So I see artificial intelligence kind of interesting, you know, approach to access to justice. And then they also see it, you know, in in my world, in the sort of corporate counsel world, where I say, well, what if we can do some things that we can, you know, give us answers that we need, so we don't have to go to high-priced lawyers to do that. And we get good enough or better than good enough answers really, really quickly. So there's that bucket. And the other bucket is, I mean, we refer to the legal zooms and the like, but I think it's the alternative, you know, quasi legal providers who are potentially doing some interesting things because they route around uh, lawyers who are slow to react to what technology can do. Um, And all of those things, I think, uh, you know, create an atmosphere where some really interesting things could happen as the technology seems like it's inexorable march of getting better and
1: more powerful. All right. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process
0: servers. ServNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy-Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy.
1: And I'm Tom Mile. We dedicated a whole podcast a while back to better use of technology while traveling. Uh, We invite you to get onto the Legal Talk Network site and check that episode out Uh, but Dennis just got back from what I understand was a wonderful vacation out of the country and I will actually be traveling to Europe later this summer myself so we thought we might revisit the topic of tech and travel and see if we had any updates or new tips that we had Dennis we have both been doing some traveling you've done a lot more recently I'm going to be doing a lot more in a month or so what did you do for the trip any any new tips that you had any uh, exciting new technologies you tried out or lessons you learned well, I, I want to give one feedback on uh, from the
0: bag show that we did, too, because I, t- I took my Tortuga backpack with me to Europe. I really liked it, um, although I did find on some of the European airlines, which it should have been OK on. They did make me check the bag, but no big deal. But other than that, that was a great choice for people who were looking for a, a good travel backpack. That's the Tortuga backpack. But what I found was, uh, and I and I think in that episode we talked a lot about the accessories, and I just—it's really amazing to me how these just those little things of of taking the adapters, which obviously need in Europe, but you know. Have the versatile adapters. Having an extension cord can be great, especially in hotels where they don't have a lot of outlets. But also the sort of the mini, I call them a mini extension adapters, which give you the ability to plug in three or four different items, and also have USB ports as well, so you can charge a bunch of things and use a bunch of things. Those are great. I experimented a little bit, which I think I'm going to do more of with a little device called the Hutu, uh, which It's one of these little wireless routers that you can take to a hotel room and then connect that. To the hotel. It gives you uh, a little more firewall protection. But the great thing is, you don't get into that situation where you can only use like one or two devices when you're carrying, you know, with a family. The, there could be five things. So that's kind of interesting $20 item called a Hutu. I think it's just called like a wireless router or travel router. Um, that's an interesting thing to play with. Also, we had a running gag with my daughter who spent the last semester in, in Switzerland saying that when she and her friends traveled, Travel to hostels and stuff like people would wander around almost like zombies going Wi-Fi password Wi-Fi password who knows a Wi-Fi password and so I found a number of things like that uh, you know where you depend on those more Wi-Fi over there. So getting access to that, that made me think more about VPN apps, those sorts of things. So those were, were some of the things. And I also been traveling without a laptop and just with my iPad. And that's, that's actually worked really well. And, you know, the Bose uh, noise-canceling headphones, totally love them.
1: You know, I've been, uh, like I said, I've been planning a trip to Europe uh, later this summer. And I, I'll, I'll just mention three things that I'm planning to use or looking forward to trying out. And, and I know that you relied a lot on public Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi when you were over there. I think that that's a good reaction to the fact that, uh, you know, trying to get a data plan on your server is expensive. It's, uh, it's, it's not cheap to have data uh, or to use the data on there. And that's why I'm going to be, I'm going to try something a little bit new and see how it works. I may still buy a little bit of data just in case, but uh, a company called XCOM Global will rent you a, uh, a mobile Wi-Fi and it's just a MiFi fi card that you carry along with you. And uh, it's a, it, it works in all the countries. You, you tell them what countries you're going to go in. It'll make sure that it works in all of the countries that you're traveling in. And it gives you unlimited Wi-Fi for somewhere around 14 $15 a day, which wound up being very comparable to just having a, a limited data plan going over to, to Europe for both phone and uh, data. And uh, I'm intrigued by it because I I can do unlimited. Uh, I, I'm a little nervous about what the speed will be like, but I'm willing to give it a shot. Uh, the other thing is, that I'm noticing is, is that uh, I have a my new Android phone. I love my Galaxy, Galaxy S6, uh, but I will say that the battery life leaves something to be desired. And since I plan to use the phone a lot, using Maps and 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 using my phone kind of as my guidebook because I keep all my my information on touring around on the, on the phone. Uh, I want to make sure I've got a good charger for the phone, and and so I found a really nice, slim, fairly lightweight charger from Anchor A N K E R, which I think has great great tools, um, great chargers for just about any circumstance that you'd want to have. And then finally, uh, a couple weeks ago at uh, at the Google Developer Conference, they announced that uh, Google's Turn by turn directions will soon go offline, so you can actually, while you have a connection, you can save offline uh, to your your turn by turn directions, and then you don't need to be using a data plan to go uh, and, and use the map. and And I'm looking forward to trying that out because I found uh, on the last trip that using Google Maps really worked very well where where I happened to be, and, and and it was a lifesaver in getting me to places and telling me how far away I was, and and being able to do that offline would just be probably all, all the better because. I I won't be using data when it happens.
0: Yeah, just two real quick other things that I found were interesting and and then sort of one overall conclusion. So we got a nice camera for my daughter for going over to Switzerland and uh, it had Wi-Fi and I wasn't really sure what that meant. Um, And then we were taking all these pictures and I, I, I said, well, if anything ever happens to this camera, we've lost all these pictures. And what I realized was that it had a Wi-Fi that you could turn on, connect... Uh, my iPhone to it, pull the pictures off this camera, uh, the iPhone would then then sync with iCloud, and so I'd sort of gotten backups of all the the important pictures really quickly, just in a few minutes using the Wi-Fi on the camera. So I think that's one thing where you say if you take a look at some of the capacities that you have and the specific problems you want to address that you may already have some technology that will do some cool things I also think traveling is a perfect use case for Evernote Um, so with Evernote you can make copies of your documents uh, you know store them in Evernote you can keep uh, you know receipts as you get them I mean there's a document camera there to make that super easy you can keep the details of Uh, the things you need to know, phone numbers, all that sort of stuff in Evernote for your trip. And that is a totally great tool for for traveling. But now it's time for our parting shots. That
1: one tip, website, or observation, you can use a second as podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I'm going to keep on the topic of the Google Developer Conference because easily the best announcement from that conference was the debut of the new uh, Google Photos. I probably have spoken about my my quest for a good photo app for a long time and i and i really think that google photos has nailed it what's what's really interesting about it it's it's a fairly simple process to get your photos uploaded. But what's really interesting is, is that Google's applying you know its search and facial recognition and all of its amazing technology to your photos. So what's amazing to me is that that once you've uploaded photos and given it some time for, for Google to kind of analyze the content of those photos, the search feature is, is just tremendous. Uh, you go to the search and it allows you to search for either people, places, or things. So it actually can recognize places. I did a search for Great Wall of China when I was there and it came up with all the pictures. I did a search in Google for dogs, and it came up with all the pictures that I had in my collection of my dogs. Um, it'll do facial recognition, and it'll show pictures of just the people that you want to look at. Uh, if it doesn't know their name, obviously, it can recognize them by the face. Um, but it is a truly, a really amazing tool to be able to organize, and it, and it sometimes will take your pictures and create albums out of them if it recognizes they're all from the same location. Uh, it creates these really nice stylized pictures that you can save if you want to or collages or animations really is interesting. I know a lot of people have said that because it's free, it's free to use up to uh, 16 megapixel pictures. A lot of people say that if if, if a product is free, then you are the product. I don't really happen to agree with that in this case. I think, yes, they're scanning your pictures and everything, but I think that to have that be useful to me and have it be photos that I can easily share, that I can easily access, and I can find on any device that I have, that's, that's something that I'm willing to deal with. And I think Google is is good in that regard. But uh, it, it is free to use. Uh, so uh, go out and give it a shot. Google Photos. Suspiciously sounds like artificial intelligence
0: there. A little bit. To me, a little different from the way you describe it. So another good potential use of, of what we we might call artificial intelligence. So my parting shot is episode 467 of the HBR IdeaCast from the Harvard Business Review. Really nice 20 minute podcast with uh, good interviews, uh, you know, thoughtful business topics. Uh, episode 467 was with the Evernote CEO Phil Liban, on what he calls the new ways we work. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there, but the the thing that stuck out for me, and there's a transcript of this now available on the HBR site, he talked about how the different forms that we use technology in, so it's a desktop, laptop, phone and now watch are differentiated. And so for developers and for users, we need to rethink how we use it. So the example would be that when we worked at a desktop computer or a laptop, basically we're looking at tasks that we probably take us around an hour to do. So that's like a good time frame for how long we would sit and work on one thing. When you go to the phone, you're probably looking for something that you can do in a couple of minutes and there's where the, the phone makes sense or maybe one minute even but when you go to the watch you're looking about a task that you would do in a couple of seconds and so with that framework that's how we need to think about how a watch is used how a phone is used and and how what makes sense, what tasks make sense, and how you develop for that. Very thoughtful, really interesting, thought-provoking conversation. So uh, definitely uh, 20 minutes of your time or less, if you if you go at one and a half speed or double speed, that will give you some things to think about and and I think give you a more effective way to think about how best to use
1: watches and phones. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tcamReport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile, and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and
0: you've been listening to The Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an Internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about this podcast. Thanks for listening to The Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of The Kennedy Mile Report only on the Legal Talk Network.